You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello and welcome to Security Unlocked, a new podcast from Microsoft where we unlock insights from the latest in news and research from across Microsoft security engineering and operations teams. I'm Nick Fillingham. And I'm Natalia Gadilla. In each episode, we'll discuss the latest stories from Microsoft security, deep dive into the newest threat intel, research, and data science. And profile some of the fascinating people working on artificial intelligence in Microsoft security. And now, let's unlock the pod. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Security Unlocked. Today, we are joined by not one, but two guests, Justin Carroll and Emily Hacker. They are both threat analysts at Microsoft, both returning guests to the Security Unlocked podcast. They are also dangerously close to being on the podcast five times. At that point, we'll have to give them a smoking jacket, just like SNL. And today, they're joining us to talk about Bazacall, which they covered in a recent Microsoft security blog. So Bazacall is a delivery method using a phone number in an email campaign to lure victims to contact an a real live operator in a call center who uses social engineering to convince you to download malicious payload to your device. And from there, hands-on keyboard, the cyber criminal is able to get extensive access to your data and not only exfiltrates it, but also looks to ransom the entire organization. So it's a Heavy, heavy conversation with a lot of great technical detail, but Emily and Justin do a really fantastic job at walking through all of the nuances of this particular campaign. With that, on with the pod. Hello, Emily Hacker and Justin Carroll. Thank you both for joining us again on the Security Unlocked podcast. If I remember right, Emily, I think this is your third time on the show. And Justin, this is a a whopping four. Yeah, sounds about right. Something like that. Yeah, I've been on a few times. (laughs) Happy to be here. Great. Yeah, and we're happy to have both of you back. So today we'll be talking about uh, another blog that both of you had authored on the Microsoft Security blog entitled Bazacall, Phony Call Centers Lead to Exfiltration and Ransomware. Really excited to dive into this today. Why don't we just start as a quick refresher, just introducing both of you to our audience. So Emily Hacker, would you mind starting? Sure. Thanks for having me on again. Um, I'm Emily Hacker. Like you said, I'm a threat intelligence analyst on the Tiger team here at Microsoft, threat intelligence team. And I focus uh, mostly on threats delivered via email. So in the Baza call case, that was very um, up my alley since there is an email component to it. Awesome. Awesome. And Justin? Thanks for having me again. I focus mostly on endpoint, looking at desktop and server activity in the Windows environment to try and understand some of the behaviors that we're seeing and kind of collaborate to figure out the the combination of successful attacks and see what we can figure out on what attackers are doing to get in and what they're doing once they're there. Awesome. Thank you for that. With that, let's dive in. So, Bazacall, what is it? 
That is a great question. Uh, so Bazocall is specifically a delivery method. So a lot of times when things get names, they might be a, a type of malware or perhaps a vulnerability. And this one is unique because Bazocall is not its own malware. It is specifically a delivery method for Basel Loader or Bazaar Loader. So the method being, as the name would imply, that it involves calling, hence Baza call. So in this case, it is when the attackers send emails to the recipients, the intended victims, I suppose, that don't contain any links or attachments, but rather contain a phone number for the recipient to call and talk with a human in a call center that will guide them through the process of downloading the bizarre loader malware onto their machine. And how long has this delivery method been around? Is this something new that we're noticing? So Baza Call specifically has been around, I want to say since January, but the the method of using phone numbers, I suppose, or a phone type of scam is not necessarily new. Vishing, as it's called, voice phishing, has been around for a while. Tech support scams have been around for a very long time. But in terms of them using that same type of scam to deliver malware, that is fairly new. I'm not sure of, off the top of my head, another malware other than Bizarre Loader that's using a call type of delivery method. And in the blog, you also note that the threat, how did you put it, is more dangerous than previously discussed in the public or publicly. What's new or what new observations have we found about the nature of this threat? So one of the things we saw is some researchers had looked into it and they were finding the successful compromises and kind of like the activity of like how it was working and how they were delivering some of the malicious files. We've seen it now shifting to kind of like extensive credential theft, exfiltrating massive amounts of data out of organizations, and then deploying Conti ransomware. So it's kind of one of many type of ransomware as a service kind of attacks. Um, It's uh, just a unique method that they're using successfully to get into environments. So it's a, a little bit more severe than folks have realized. A lot of the research out there had been surrounding the delivery method and not so much the outcomes of a lot of the attacks. And we were able to kind of combine those two into a cohesive story to really understand um, end-to-end kind of what these attacks were doing and how they related to ransomware deployments and um, Conti, which is a known ransomware as a service. Uh, So it's one of the more successful methods of uh, getting entry into an environment, but also using that access to do much more nefarious things than folks originally were seeing. And both of you had hinted at this. So Bazical sounds like it's unique. Uh, It's not similar to other phishing campaigns in that there is no malicious link or attachment. You know, as a user, those are typically signals to me when I see a suspected phishing email that that I consider a red flag if I see a link that I am being encouraged to open. It, that's not the case here. So um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, why they've chosen this unique delivery method and and what else is particularly unique about these Bazical campaigns. Yeah, so for the delivery method, there's definitely a few reasons why an attacker would want to use this. Um, The first one being what you just mentioned is that the people who are receiving this have been trained on what to avoid an email. And this type of delivery mechanism 
really kind of goes around all of the things that people are trained to avoid. And so since there's no links, there's no attachments, people might see the phone number and think, well, this must be legit. Another thing that they're doing is that they are in these emails, they're pretending to be real services, real companies, or in in this week's most recent campaign, they're actually um, using some concert ticket lures and they're using real artists. Monday this week was Justin Bieber concert tickets. So there are things that people in some cases have heard of. So if someone were to Google, you know, I got this weird email or whatever, and like Google the name of the company or Google the concert, they might actually get results. And I think that's one thing that people are trained to do. It's like, oh, I got this weird email from this company, Google real company, like, okay, this is fine. And in this case, you know, obviously it may not be. Another thing is once the user does call, granted the the number of successful callers might be might be lower than what might be the number of successful uh, clickers. But as Justin mentioned, since this is leading to severe consequences, you really only need one person to call. And when that person does call, there's also a higher chance of, I guess, success on the attacker side in terms of getting the user, the victim, to actually complete the entire process of downloading the malware. So in this case, when they're on the phone, they're on the phone with a real human, a call center agent who walks them through, okay, visit this website. The user will go to that website and they'll say, okay, navigate to this page and you need to click on this thing in order to unsubscribe or whatever, you know, to get your credit card taken off of this. Download the Excel. Okay, now make sure that you click to um, enable content and enable the macros and then that's how you download the malware, right? So in case where the user wasn't on the phone with the customer or the victim, rather, there's a lot of steps along that chain where the the victim might have gotten stopped. So the first one being if the email was sent containing a link or an attachment, a lot of email security technologies are very good at blocking malicious and malicious attachments. They're, that's what our kind of bread and butter is. But blocking just a plain text email can be a little bit more difficult because you you can't just block based on the technique. If there is none, they're using you know real email services like free ones such as AOL. So you just can't block on domain. So it makes it easier for the email to get delivered. Not to mention the actual act of downloading the malware. So you know the user if they were left to their devices, they might not ever download the Excel or they might download the Excel but never execute the macros. And in this case, having a human on the phone walking them through it can get someone who either would be you know, suspicious to not go through with it, or maybe a little less technically savvy to actually download the malware. And then finally, like it circumvents the email technologies, the email security technologies, it's also going to circumvent potentially some more endpoint security technologies. I I believe we had mentioned this in the blog, I remember, um, but we did see um, that in one case, at least, a user had been on the phone, obviously, with the, the attacker, and you see them try to access the, the malicious site on Edge, and it's blocked. And then they go to Chrome, and it's blocked. And then they go back to Edge, I believe, and it's blocked. And then we actually see them circumventing smart screen, which is our protection that keeps them from, navi- from navigating to these bad sites. So you can almost hear that conversation with the attacker being like, oh, that's our real site. Like, you know, I don't know why Microsoft has this block. Try it on Chrome or like, just click this button that says navigate to it anyway, because it's fine. And like, without being on the phone with the attacker, I think the majority, if not all people in that situation would have been like, oh, the site is bad. Like, X out, never go back. But because they're on the phone with a real human, they have someone telling them like, no, no, this is okay. Trust me, I work here. Like, I don't know why this is blocked, but just go to it anyway. So it gives the attacker the kind of more 
even though it initially kind of feels like there would be less chance of success because like, who's really going to call this number? Because you only need one, if you're going to be deploying ransomware, right? You only need one successful compromise. This is actually a higher probability of them actually successfully getting someone to be compromised. Do we know what the success rate has been? How much has been lost to Bazacall? We were seeing for quite a while, like each wave of these, we would see, you know, five to 10 devices a week, give or take, where like there would be successful compromise with hands-on keyboard activity, which doesn't sound like a lot at first. But when you realize that each one of these is a potential ransom that could be in the hundreds of thousands or millions, if it's an enterprise, depending on the, the scope of the ransomware and how widely it's deployed, you really don't need that many to hit. So they do send a large swath of emails out. And then it's just a matter of figuring out the ones that kind of connect all the way through the chain and figuring out where the attackers actually seeing that success to the very end. And for the most part, it seems like they're compared to a lot of other delivery methods for these types of ransomware, like they're doing pretty well, unfortunately. So let's unpack this. We've t- we've talked about some of the steps that occur in the campaign, but you know, end to end, what's the flow of the attack chain? So the attack chain for this really starts with the email. So the first thing that we'll see is the the wave of emails being sent out, and they are usually sent out once or twice a week, kind of in these big waves to tons of users. And they use a different lore, uh, like lore, it's a word I cannot say, but L-U-R-E, <laughs> lure, different one of those per uh, week. And each email contains, like I mentioned, the phone number for the whatever the lore that week is. So in the in the case, I think in the blog, uh, we were talking about one where someone had supposedly purchased a subscription service or something. And so that would be calling the phone number in order to cancel your subscription. There have been other ones where, you know, I believe there was one that was pretending to be, uh, you had to call a lawyer because you had some kind of like traffic violation. I'm struggling to remember exactly what the lore was there, but it was basically like, call us if you want to get out of this violation. And like I mentioned this week, there was the one for the concert tickets. And so in in each case, there's kind of this thing at the bottom that's like, oh, go ahead and call us if you want to cancel. So another aspect of the emails that is important is that every single email has a unique ID associated with it. So they're all kind of similar in that they follow the same pattern, but each one, it'll be like one to three letters and then nine to 15 numbers or something. And each email has one that's unique. And that's important because the next step of the kill chain is that the the user will call the number in the email and the, the person on the other end of the phone who answers will ask for that ID so they're able to actually tie it back. So let's say that I had called the number, I received the email and I called the number and I gave them my ID. They'd be like, oh, Emily Hacker, because they would have it tied to my actual account. So that makes it interesting from an analysis perspective, because we can't just like call up and be like, yo, what up? Like, because we don't have the account numbers or we would have to basically impersonate a customer, which isn't something that we really want to be doing. So once the user does call, As I kind of mentioned, the call center person will walk them through the next step, which will tell them to navigate to a malicious website that is in some way, shape, or form related to the email lure that week. So there have been times where, for example, there was one that was like a a cooking subscription, and there was a couple of websites that were used that the name was not the same as the name in the email, which probably should have been a red flag to these users, but that might be something that's really difficult to spot if you're just kind of in panic mode trying to get your credit card from not being charged. 
the attacker will say, okay, visit this website in order to cancel and we'll take your credit card off this list. They will tell them to navigate to the account page or the cancellation page where they are told to download and excel in order to can't to like cancel, which again, probably is another red flag. If you ever are told to download something in order to cancel your subscription, like just just halt right there and and don't do it. Yeah, um, I don't really understand what an Excel file would do for me at that point. No, nothing good. And <laughs> that is exactly what it does. It's nothing good. So the Excel file is, um, if the user does download it, another thing that's interesting is that it also does contain the the ID number that I was talking about, but it claims that the spreadsheet is protected in some way, shape, or form, which is a very, very common lore that we see in office documents in general, is that they'll claim that, oh, this this document is protected or it's old, so you need to enable editing and enable content in order to view it. Of course, in that case, no, that's also not true. It's just going to enable macros on this spreadsheet. And the macros are what will then, I guess, initiate the next phase of the attack, which is Justin's realm kind of like what they'll do from that point. Once they've gotten the user to execute the macro, the person on the call center is basically done, right? Like they, they've kind of done their part. The malicious code is now executing in all likelihood, depending on configurations for each device or organization, the device is basically soon to be controlled by an attacker. It will use a, a method of downloading um, the next payload that it needs to kind of ascertain information about the device, um, doing what's called a living off the land binary, um, where so they'll use built-in Windows tools, in this case, CertUtil, to actually download the next malicious payload, uh, which is Bazaar Loader. And then once Bazaar Loader is in there, it will install a backdoor, and then it will allow subsequent command and control using Cobalt Strike. So at that point, the user is unaware of all of this happening. They did the document and they're like, oh, I got it canceled. That's it. The automated process portion of the attack will also um, add persistence into a start folder where it will basically, if the machine ever gets rebooted or anything like that, it will automatically attempt to try and reestablish the connection to the attacker so that even if there are some errors or anything like that, you know, user shuts down the machine when all this is kind of going on they can just hit it again the next day. From that point, once they've established that kind of hands-on keyboard control of the device, it's getting pretty close to game over at that point. There are things that organizations can do to to kind of slow and stop the attacker and mitigate the attacks, but the clock is ticking. Most of the time, when you have that hands-on keyboard attacker in your environment, it's a matter of time until they are able to get credentials with higher privileges. And then from there, they can move laterally and continually elevate their privileges as they did in this case, where they eventually moved to some kind of like high value targets that have information that they could use to do what's kind of the new hotness in ransomware, where it's called double extortion, where you basically, the end goal is to steal as much data as possible and ransom all of the devices that they can gain access to. And then if the organization doesn't want to pay the ransom, then you threaten to release the data that you stole or make them pay for that instead. Basically kind of ensuring that the organization will unfortunately comply and pay the ransom. 
So in this case, usually a lot of the times we were seeing could be anywhere to like 48 hours from time of initial compromise to complete hands-on keyboard control. One of the other things that they've been doing, we've been seeing a lot of ransomware as a service groups doing this, so it's kind of no surprise because they, they kind of tend to all overlap and use similar scripts amongst each other, is they make a backup of the Active Directory database. What that essentially means is they are able to get hashed copies of all the users and passwords for the entire organization. So in effect, with a little bit of time, every one of your users in your entire environment is compromised. So you essentially have to take extensive action to try and stop the attacker from coming back. They will plant multiple forms of persistence so that they will add users, right? Like at that point, you're constantly trying to put out fires, trying to stop the attacker from doing whatever it is. And a lot of times while you're trying to do that, they're off in the background stealing your data and all of that kind of fun stuff. So it can get really nasty really quick. And unfortunately, it usually emanates from a singular user making a phone call. How does Bazacall evade detection? So there's a human element of social engineering and that it is a phone call instead of, like you said, Emily, a, a link or an attachment that our typical technologies would detect and remediate. But there were a couple other components later in the attack chain that also talked about technical details of how they stayed covert once they were inside the system. Could you describe a few of those, Justin? They're always trying different ways to kind of evade detection as much as possible. I would say most attackers are, they don't typically know what alerts are going to fire for which behaviors, but they do know where their successes and their failures are. So it's a constant cat and mouse game of as we update and improve detections or capabilities of alerting or blocking, then they'll shift part of their attack chain to then bypass that and then you know back and forth. So in this case, one of the new things that they were doing that we hadn't seen too many folks do is so that cert util tool that I was talking about, it has a legitimate purpose. So what they would do is they would make a copy of that tool and then put it in a different folder, rename it, and then execute it to download their malicious payload. So any rule-based alerting that you have for cert util being used as a lull bin, if it's based on naming, which some security providers might do, then it's not going to fire because in this case, it's not cert util, it's a copy of cert util named something else. So it's a new way. They didn't have to deliver a payload to download their next one, right? Like it was already built in. They just had to make a copy and rename it. Whereas if they hadn't renamed it, then it would be more likely to be caught. So it's just kind of one of the many ways. The other thing that they'll do is like, uh, it's a really common technique that you'll see, and it was tied to that, is attackers love to put things in folders that are hidden by default. So like with the Windows file system, you have certain folders that by default are hidden and you have to kind of go out of your way to show their presence. In addition, so in this case, this is program data, and there are a couple of them to say the least, there are no write protections to these folders. So you can put up whatever files you want. Many of the hidden folders prevent users or would-be attackers from putting data in the folder because it's in an important directory or anything like that. There are some special ones where there are no write protections, so you can put whatever files you want in there, and it's completely invisible to the user. So even if the user opens 
folders and is looking around, you know, they're like, you know, I'm not sure about that document that I opened. Let me look and see if I can find anything that they did. All the files are in a hidden file. Like the the signs are there, but you have to have kind of some security acumen and know what tools to use to kind of understand like, oh no, this is far worse than I realized. And, you know, the attacker may already have my credentials and may be using my account to log into a different device or dump their credentials from an administrator that logged onto my account for maintenance and then use their credentials for stuff like that. So with a lot of the ransomware type stuff and the hands on keyboard, they know most of the time they're detected. And so that's why it's a, a scramble to, to deploy and distribute the ransomware as fast as they can, right? Like they know for themselves, the clock is likely ticking, right? The odds are they did something that the alert product in place caught and notified. And it's a matter of time until an organization can triage it versus when it can be stopped. At some point, they kind of, once they get to a certain point, it's you can kind of tell that there's a little less care in evading defenses and more move quickly. They also do defense evasion other than just the fact that the email doesn't contain links and attachments. They also have been adding defense evasion into the email as well to kind of add to what Justin's saying. Like they have to successfully get onto the box and that's kind of the main goal. And then after that, it's just like a scramble. But if the email never gets delivered is kind of the whole operation is a fail. And so the emails, you know, themselves, despite having, you know, no links, no attachments being delivered by common domains, such as, you know, Gmail, AOL, etc. Obviously, the attackers were finding that these emails were not being successfully delivered in some cases, probably, you know, because like I do, a lot of security researchers are aware that they're being delivered and are tracking them. And if you have tracking rules that perhaps are based on the the body of the email containing maybe that ID that I was talking about and a phone number, then you might be able to not block these outright, but surface them in a way where you can identify and quickly block them. But we're seeing in the email that they are now trying to obfuscate the fact that it contains a phone number. So back at the beginning, you know, a lot of these emails just contained a phone number. So I'd call us at one number, 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 number. And early on, I did see some attempt at obfuscation where they would put basically basically like throwaway HTML tags in between the numbers. So instead of, let's pretend it was like one five, 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 it would be like one and then like a random HTML tag and then five, 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 and then like a random HTML tag. And so to the user, it just looks like a phone number. But if you have security technologies that are reading this email, they're reading the HTML and it might break up the phone number and not actually look like anything. Well, that's not entirely successful because basically if you also have security technologies that can read the rendered email itself, then it still looks like a phone number. And so more recently, what we're seeing is that they're actually using white text to put extra numbers in between the numbers. So instead of saying 1555, it'll say 1955575553555 or whatever. And then to the user, it just looks like a phone number. But to any security technology reading that, it's not going to match the template of a phone number at all because it has three too many numbers. So that's another layer of what I would personally consider defense evasion in, in the email sphere that they are also doing. So, Oof, That one sounds clever. There seems to be a high level of sophistication and, and personalization, right? So in the, in the blog, you also stated that there's a unique email sender every time. You address the fact that there's a unique account number. There are different email titles and lures. 
Who's running the Bazical campaigns? Do we know anything about the profile of these threat actors? So with attacker activity like this, because it's criminal industry, what ends up happening is you have multiple different groups that are kind of collaborating together for different aspects of the kill chain and working on different parts. So with a ransomware as a service, so they're deploying Conti. So in this case, you have the operators who are building and deploying the ransomware, and then you have the affiliates who are actually like working and giving it to the customers and trying to get payment from the operators and such. Then you also have other people who are working on granting access and standing up the call centers and figuring out, you know, what techniques we should do for the email. So there are so many different groups that are all kind of working together to kind of ensure successful compromise and they're buying and selling access from each other and buying and selling tools. It's kind of a mess a lot of the times whenever you're (laughs) in the, the criminal industry because there is so much collaboration between all of them and you'll see a lot of overlap in techniques and code similarities and stuff like that. So it makes it a little bit more tricky to kind of nail down which specific part. So you really kind of have to focus on the different aspects of the behaviors and kind of look at them in that way and say like, okay, let's figure out who's behind these parts and stuff like that and try and see if you can dig deeper into that and then kind of build a whole cohesive picture to it. But it does take a long time because it is fairly complex and they're ever-shifting. So it's uh, it makes for a fun challenge. Oh, I'm sure. I was going to add that uh, that last point. I, I'm sure it's particularly difficult because you finally build this profile of this particular group and the function that they play in the larger cybercrime infrastructure, and then, boom, they change their behavior. So let's talk a little bit about protections then. So how can uh, someone who's listening to this episode today defend against such an elusive attack as this? I suppose one of the things, like our product... If someone is using MDO, which is, you know, Microsoft Defender for Office, which is our email protection, this is something that we have teams such as myself constantly looking at. So we are the ones who are the defense in terms of while this might be evading that organization's specific defenses in their email, and they might not have a team that's big enough to constantly be like looking for the the new email every week. That's what Microsoft does. And that's why we have threat intelligence teams. And people like myself who are constantly looking and have been constantly looking for weeks on end. And so when I see these new waves of emails, these immediately go into our product stack so that they won't be delivered to our customers or so they can be removed from inbox if they've already been delivered to our customers if, you know, they slipped through, for example. Um, So by just using the product itself is one way that customers can be protected from this. And then on the... The rest of the delivery front, such as, you know, enabling smart screen. That was one that I had mentioned earlier that we we saw a customer click the like bypass smart screen message. Obviously, that is less than ideal. But um, what that does show us is that these bad sites, you know, Microsoft knows about them and has them blocked on edge. So if someone is using edge, you know, I would say that if you showed five people that message, at least a few of them are going to be like, eh, I don't know about this. Never mind. I'm going to get off the phone and not click through this. So, like, utilizing Edge and Smart Screen are other ways that you can prevent this from happening. And then, on top of that, the Excel spreadsheets themselves, we have security protections in place that identify that these spreadsheets are malicious. So, in some of the 
some of the waves, we saw people posting that they would get like researchers that were actually trying to see what was bad about these spreadsheets were posting that they were trying to analyze the spreadsheet and they kept getting a pop-up from Microsoft being like, this spreadsheet's bad. Like, nope, you don't get it. And so like, while I'm sure as a researcher, that's frustrating. That's really good because what that means is that people who did get through all of these steps are going to download these spreadsheets and Microsoft already is aware that they're malicious. And so they don't get the opportunity to enable the macro and move on to the next phase of the attack. On that note, one of the things, like a a specific protection that would go a long way for this threat, there is a protection that customers can implement disabling the use of unsigned macros. It's a way basically where they can only allow macros for business needs that are signed and are launched in trusted locations from the environment. So because you know organizations are going to need to have macros and documents. It's just there's no way around that. But macros are one of the main methods of executing malicious code on the endpoint and actually getting the dropper or taking control of the device. So that's one of the biggest things that they could do to really kind of stem that attack because you know we do have amazing detection technologies as Emily was talking about where it will identify the malicious workbooks and basically block the Excel document from the start and prevent the user from doing anything with it. But not everybody uses the same antivirus provider. So it's one of those, this one is kind of a a good solution for that. They can also look into, Microsoft has these attack surface reduction rules, which kind of help slow and stop attackers. Um, One of the big ones for ransomware is the blocking process creations originating from PSExec and WMI. So PSExec is a little bit older, but system administration tool that, like most tools, right, like you, it depends on who's using it and what their intent is. It's one of the more common tools used in ransomware deployments because it allows you to easily distribute ransomware to hundreds or thousands of devices simultaneously. So putting that in place can really inhibit the attacker's ability to distribute the ransomware and they have to figure out different, maybe slower or less effective methods. Those two things alone with what Emily was talking about can really go a long way to slow and in many cases completely stop the attackers from having a successful campaign. Wow, okay, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing all of those details. Thank you again for joining us, Emily and Justin. It was great to really deep dive on the on this blog on Bazical. And as always, it's great to have both of you on the podcast. Awesome. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Well, we had a great time unlocking insights into security from research to artificial intelligence. Keep an eye out for our next episode. And don't forget to tweet us at MSFT Security or email us at securityunlocked at Microsoft.com with topics you'd like to hear on a future episode. Until then, stay safe. Stay secure. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.